Our scripture lesson comes to us this morning from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. I invite you to hear aloud or follow along in your own Bibles you have with you from the first chapter of Ephesians, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us and the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him... You also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Up until he was nine years old, the only exposure Rick Bragg had to church came on Sunday mornings, when his mama would turn on the television and watch the revivalist preachers as they broadcast their sermons from auditoriums all across the country. However, in his memoir, All Over But the Shoutin', which I imagine a few of us read a while back, Bragg describes what happened on the day that his mother decided it was time to attend church in the flesh. She took him and the family to Hollis Crossroads Baptist, a small congregation just outside of Possum Trot, Alabama. Bragg remembers meeting good people there. He remembers singing hymns with a congregation that was too small to have a choir. He remembers that, in his words, the minister was a kind-looking older man who, instead of scaring the congregation, spoke of the loveliness, the wonder, and the bliss of salvation. But most of all, Bragg remembers what always came after the sermon. Bragg writes, The people in the congregation would sing softly, just as I am, as the old man in his sweat-stained polyester sport coat begged them to come forward to kneel to be saved. And he saved them one by one, the young ones and the old ones and even the ones who had been saved once or twice already. And every Sunday I waited. I waited for the invitation, the infusion, the joy. I waited for the Holy Ghost to slip inside my heart and my mind and as he had done to all those around me, lift me up out of the pew and up to that altar, saving me. I waited like a boy waiting on a train. But while I felt wonder and maybe a little fear, I never felt what I had seen or maybe sensed in others. I was not 
refusing him. I was not rebuking God. I wanted it. I wanted the strength of it, the joy of it. Most of all, I wanted the peace of it. The preacher promised it. He promised. I just sat there. I could have pretended. I think that some did pretend. But what good would that have done? I sat as the Sundays drained away. I never felt so alone before. I don't think I ever have since. I stopped going after a while. I never went to church again. But I am not sorry I went then. I don't know about you. That story troubles me. It troubles me to picture that boy waiting for a peace that never came. I think what troubles me most is his memory of the loveliness and the wonder and the bliss of salvation. You, you know, if Rick Bragg had only ever heard from preachers who spoke condemnation and fear, then I wouldn't worry about this. I would simply say he'd never heard the good news. But to think that his memory is of blessings and of grace, to think that he heard that message, and he wanted that grace and that peace, and yet he walked away unsatisfied. That's what troubles me. How painful it must be to see faith in the faces of other people, but to see it as if from the other side of a piece of glass. The more you try to draw close, the more your face is pressed against the glass and distorted. And if you try to draw too close, and press too hard, suddenly you may realize you can't even breathe. I wonder if you've ever looked on with envy at someone's faith. And wondered why you couldn't summon the same. I wonder if your heart has ever been troubled on behalf of someone who finds themselves on the other side of that glass, pressed up against it. A little later in the book of Ephesians, Paul will say, you are saved by God's grace through faith, and this salvation is God's gift. It is not something you possessed. It's not something that you did that you can be proud of. And to some of you today, that is good news. Salvation and faith are a gift. You can't earn them. God doesn't love you because of what you've done or because of what you haven't done. God loves you just because. But to other of us, it is terrifying to think that this blessed assurance we call faith is a gift because we can't do anything about it. We can't control it. We can't control a gift. I can't make you give me a gift. If I make you give it, it's not really a gift, is it? A gift depends entirely on the giver. And if you or a nine-year-old boy can sit there waiting for that gift that never seems to come, what does that say about the giver? Some churches will say that it means that the giver does whatever the giver pleases, and it's not for us to question. Some call it fate. Some call it destiny. Some really churchy people will call it predestination. 
whatever you call it, the conviction is the same. There are some who believe that if there is a God, then God must choose some folks for faith and not others. Some folks are just wired for faith and others are not. And when we look at the scriptures that we read today, they seem equally fatalistic about the prospects of faith. God destined us to be adopted children through Jesus Christ because of his love, Paul says. We are destined by the plan of God. And whoever Paul defines as we, if they are destined, doesn't that kind of imply that some are destined for something else? And we wonder, is God really so very choosy? The answer is, of course, yes. God is incredibly choosy. The nation of Israel was God's chosen people. King David was their chosen king. Every single prophet you've ever read in the Bible was specially chosen by God. God made a point in Jesus Christ of telling his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And today's passage that we read from Ephesians, it comes to us from a preacher named Paul. And maybe you've heard the story of how Paul was chosen on the road to a place called Damascus. Paul was dead set on killing Christians, as many as he could find, throwing them in jail until God intervened and said, I have chosen something better for you. God is incredibly, relentlessly choosy. If you read any part of the Bible for very long, you get a quick answer to the question, does God choose people? But don't stop there. Don't stop asking questions. Because it is perfectly healthy to ask the next and obvious question. Why? Why does God choose? And what is God choosing for? Because thank God in today's passage, the answer to that question comes just as quickly. Paul says, this is what God planned for the climax of all times to bring all things together in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. God's plan is to bring all things together. God has chosen some to be a sign and a witness that God chooses all. That God is bringing all things together. When God chose the nation of Israel, he told Abraham, I am choosing this nation so that I can bless all nations. And I want you to hear this because it is incredibly important and a lot of Christians don't seem to know it. But if you read the Bible, it is right there in front of your face. God has chosen some to be a sign that God chooses all. In verse 9, Paul calls this God's mystery. We've talked a lot recently about mysteries, about paradoxes. And I've said that a lot of them can't be explained, but let me see if I can put this one into some everyday terms. Don't think of salvation or grace or even the Holy Spirit as if they are abstract concepts. I want you to imagine for a moment that the grace of God was something you could see and touch and taste. Imagine what it would be like if grace was 
And imagine God had chosen to give that food to a very particular group of people. Imagine God gave that food to them as a special gift. And God said, here, I have this beautiful meal. And I've chosen to share it with you. And I chose to share it at this particular time and in this particular place. And then imagine that every time this group of people got together to receive this meal, some strangers showed up at the same time in the same place. What do God's chosen people do? Do they say God chose us for this meal and not you? Where's your reservation? Or do they say, oh, that's why God chose us. So that we would have enough to share. You don't have to imagine, of course. This is what happens every time we take communion. We believe it is a gift that God gives especially to the church, not so that we can hoard it, but so that we can then offer it to all. One of my greatest privileges as a pastor is when someone asks if they can talk about joining our church. Whenever they ask, and some have asked even in this strange time, one of the things I tell them is that joining the church is like the opposite of the old American Express commercials. You remember those? They used to say American Express membership has its privileges. Well, that's not us. <laughs> you don't have to be a member of this church to get all the best things we have to offer. You don't have to be a member of this church for us to visit you, to pray for you. You don't have to be a member of this church to join a small group or to worship in your favorite seat, or to come join us in the holy meal that we share together. You don't even have to be a member of this church for us to teach your kids in our children's ministry. Now, when you become a part of this church, it's not because you want the privileges. The only privilege you get is the privilege of purpose. You get a mission and a calling it says, I no longer want to simply receive the gifts of God, but I want to take an active part in fulfilling my calling to share those gifts with the world. You accept that God has chosen you to be a part of God's plan to bring all things together in Christ. And when we say all things, we mean all things. When you accept that God is calling you, you accept responsibility for all sorts of things that weren't your problem before. If God has chosen us to bring all things together in heaven and on earth, as Paul says, then we are chosen to be a sign for how God wants all people to treat the earth. We have to act like that matters because God is bringing all things together. We are chosen to be a sign of unity and peace. And when the world knows what Christians are against, but they don't have a clue what we are for, we don't get to say, that's not my problem, that's those Christians causing that. No, if we are chosen to bring all things together, then we are called to be active. When we see those who have been hurt by the church, who are disconnected. We don't get to stand at a safe distance from them until they come to us. We are called and we are chosen to go to them, to befriend our neighbors, to be a living, tangible sign that God will not leave them alone. 
And I think that's what troubles me most about Rick Bragg's story. Because I can accept that he wanted to wait to feel a true conviction in his heart. I can accept that he refused to fake an encounter with God. That seems well and good and very honest to me. But what I cannot accept is him saying, I have never felt so alone. If all those people were being chosen to bring all things together, then somebody was chosen to make sure a nine-year-old boy didn't wait alone. I can't help thinking that somebody's call from God was not to go forward. Somebody was supposed to stay there in that pew. Be a sign that he was not forgotten. I have to believe that God had chosen someone specifically for that purpose and someone chose not to accept that responsibility. Because we have that same responsibility. Once you know that God has chosen you, you have to choose. We can choose to be faithful or not. God's choices don't take away your freedom. In fact, they will give you more freedom than you know what to do with. I think that sometimes we would rather argue about our faith or defend it because we'd rather not use it. We're so accustomed to the freedoms of the world. We've been told that freedom is not free, and that is true in the worldly sense. But God's freedom is. The price has already been paid, and nobody can pay it again. It's done. It is a freely given gift. And if you really have God's freedom, you won't spend time trying to defend it or buy it or prove its worth. Rather than defending or proving our freedom, we are supposed to get on with using it by going to those who need to hear that God has chosen them too. We're supposed to get on with telling folks that God has chosen them. God has chosen the church to be a sign that God chooses all. And since I assume that all sorts of folks are gathered here and at home and everywhere, I have a different word for all the different kinds of people that God has united this morning. First, I want to say one quick word to the chosen people of God, to those who have known that assurance in your heart, who have that faith in God. Today, I want you to choose again to be faithful to what you have received and do not forget why you are the church. Take responsibility for the mission that God has given you. And choose to freely share every crumb and every drop of grace that God has chosen to give you. And to those who may be hearing this, who don't yet know that God has chosen you. To those who are pleading with God for the gift of peace. Who are waiting for the wonder. To you I say... We are here to make sure you do not wait alone. 
There's no need to pretend. There's no need to settle. You don't have to fake it for us. We will wait with you. And an infinite God has given us plenty of patience. If God has not yet given you the faith that you are looking for, take comfort in this. We have plenty of faith to share. You may not yet know that God has chosen you. But we do. We are sure of it. We know that you are a child of God. And we will keep telling you and reminding you until you can believe it for yourself. Remember what Paul said to us today. We who were the first to find hope in Christ. He's implying that we will not be the last. And time has not run out. And finally, I have a word for those who are just beginning. Maybe it just happened this morning. Maybe it is just happening now. That you are realizing that God has chosen you. And forgiven you. And called you. If that's you this morning, then I'd love to talk to you after worship about the purpose God is giving you. But the main thing I would say is welcome. Don't wait any longer. You've been given this faith for a purpose. And we've got some work to do. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.